0: was Grace Potter performing Mad, Mad River, a song that she composed to support flood relief in the aftermath of Tropical Storm Irene. Welcome to 10 Years After Irene, a WDEV radio special that is part of our year-long WDEV at 90 celebration. I'm David Goodman, and I'll be your host tonight. On Sunday, August 28, 2011, Tropical Storm Irene, which was forecast to inundate New York City, missed the New York metro area and slammed into Vermont instead. The storm dumped more than eight inches of rain on parts of the Green Mountain State, and numerous rivers broke all-time flood records. Around Vermont, some 3,500 homes suffered damage, and more than 1,400 households were displaced either temporarily or permanently. Many Vermont communities were completely severed from the outside world as 530 miles of state highway and 34 state bridges were closed. Tragically, seven Vermonters lost their lives. As the power went out and bridges washed away, a familiar friend kept many people connected throughout the long night of this historic storm. WDEV, which this year celebrates its 90th anniversary, went into emergency mode, broadcasting around the clock, sharing life saving information with Vermonters about what was happening and how to stay safe. All the while, WDEV was coping with its own disasters as floodwaters rose around the Waterbury studio and it lost power. Tonight, we bring WDEV's Irene Band back together to recall that fateful night and its aftermath. We're joined by WDEV veterans Eric Michaels, Lee Cattell, Tom Beardsley, and Roger Hill. Later in the show, we'll also hear from Vermont's former Irene recovery officer, Sue Minter. First, let's turn back the uh, dial back to the early morning hours of Tropical Storm Irene. This is Tom Beardsley on the night of the storm.
1: A lot of flooding throughout the state of Vermont today. There's going to be a lot of cleanup over the next several days. We're here on the air with you because uh, other media in the state unavailable tonight, either. Uh, they just can't be available or have no intention of uh, trying to be available. And we, this is what we do. We want to keep you company. We want to uh, keep you reassured through the night tonight that there will be a sunrise tomorrow and things will begin to get cleaned up. We're hoping uh, that uh, when this is all said and done, that we're going to emerge out of this with no loss of life. Uh, I may be an optimist, but let's, uh, let's hope that that's the way it turns out and no serious injuries. There's going to be a lot of property damage, though. Uh, I think that's safe to say.
2: A lot of sadness, no yeah. doubt about it.
1: Well, let's uh, check
3: in from one of our other communities that has been kind of isolated from everywhere else. Greensboro Bend, a lot of the bridges to uh, access that community in Orleans County are not faring very well. Uh, Jane is listening in through the overnight hours. Jane, you're live on WDEV. How are, how are you doing up there?
4: Oh, we're doing okay.
3: Well, what can yeah. you tell us about uh, your experience through the storm today?
4: Well, we're on the hill up above Greensboro Bend, and... Um, I went down to the bend to check the river about 4.35 o'clock tonight and took some photos, and the bridges were still open. And about an hour later, there was, there was uh, water all over the bridges, and they, nobody could get in and out of the bend.
2: Yeah, it sure came up fast, didn't it?
4: There's Yeah, there was. there's three entrances into the village, and all with bridges, and they're all underwater.
2: Yeah, one of them is a railroad track. Am I right the, where the railroad track goes? Um, the
4: railroad track goes
0: through the bend, yeah. Yep. That, that was Tom Beardsley, uh, weather forecaster Roger Hill, and Lee Cattell on the night of Tropical Storm Irene. And it just gives you a sampling of that coverage. Uh, Tom Beardsley, um, I'm interested the way you led into that, um, which was to talk about how WDEV was one of the only stations that was ready for the storm and broadcasting live What were you referring to there?
5: Well, a lot of uh, radio stations, as you know, David, around the country these days, uh, sadly, a great many of them are fully automated. And I'm not being critical of the fact that they're automated. It's an economic necessity in this day and age for many radio stations. But the niche that we've always filled is being live and local and doing those things beyond just playing the latest country music or the best classic rock or whatever it might be our niche has been the relevance of the radio station to the community and reaching out into the community particularly at times like Irene and providing a real service and providing information that is vital to the sur- not only the well-being but actually to the very survival of our friends and neighbors around Vermont and that's that's what I was referring to this is what we do this game on for us i've told you before that no broadcaster and i don't think anybody wants to ever see anything bad happen but for broadcasters like eric michaels and roger hill and lee Cattell and myself even though we don't want a bad thing to happen when something's happening the four of us we want to be nowhere but in that studio delivering that information game on that's what we do lee
0: Cattell. um Tell me what happened that day for you, how Tropical Storm Irene unfolded.
3: Well, we knew in advance that we would be coming in on a Sunday afternoon. There was plenty of advance legwork done that that we knew we would arrive in the early afternoon. We gathered with a a brief conference in the back room downstairs and then came up here and, and assumed our positions, and I'm right here where I am Today that I was 10 years ago, uh, lighting up phone calls and and figuring out what the next thing is that's going to go on the air. The storm came into the area and left, and I never saw a drop of it. By the time we had left the following morning, I jumped in the car, and the clouds had all, were all leaving the area. And so I, the most compelling place to be that day was right here on the air anyways. Hmm.
0: Um, there was – now what people – for, for late, late night listeners of WDEV in that area, uh, they knew that WDEV did not go all night. Um, Lee, explain the normal routine here. Well,
3: we uh, usually go on the air. We're live. Somebody in the studio, and in, in those days, right up until the midnight hour, we would play the national anthem and call it a broadcast day, and the morning person would come back in about shortly before 5 o'clock. Uh but that night we went round o'clock into the into the wee hours of the morning, and then when the morning people came in uh, well, my work was done, and it was on to them to uh, take over the events of the day and and move on but it was a a very fascinating series of events because a lot of people wanted to take part in what we were doing around the community. people wanted to share how they felt, what they saw. Uh, and and what their experiences were. So the four of us were here the whole time, but there were so many contributions from our listening audience, and they're a, a very important part, and their contributions are critical to what make us successful here on the air.
0: Well, we have a clip uh, here um, of Eric Michaels uh, talking about going all night.
6: All right. Um, again, uh, we're, we're, you know, you have to understand if you're just joining us, why are these guys fooling around. It's a serious situation. Yeah, Believe me, we know that, but we've been dealing with this serious situation nonstop since, uh, uh, six o'clock on, on Sunday morning. So we're into whatever that hour would be at this point. And we're committed to staying here overnight until we uh, get daybreak and get a bit more of the assessment on what's happening all through, uh, all through the Green Mountain State, and uh, and our neighbors uh, to our east and west over New Hampshire. They've had over 265 road closures.
0: So, Eric uh, Michaels, uh, great to have you back here on WDEV. You were a fixture here for uh, decades uh, and a key player in that Irene coverage. Um, one of the questions that I have was, in the lead-up to your Irene coverage, How did you know and how did you prepare that this was not going to be an ordinary storm or an ordinary night of broadcasting?
7: Well, David, uh, good evening to you. And first, I want to say it's an honor to be back here on WDEV, and congratulations on their 90th anniversary. Secondly, my thoughts and prayers this evening go to those uh, this week that are suffering from the aftereffects of tropical storm. Uh, Henri, I can honestly say that we know, what you are going through we knew really on the friday morning before the storm roger hill who you know we had our daily conversations with as part of the morning news service had left something i think unsaid on the air and i immediately after i got off the air we called roger and i asked him you, you weren't you were sort of holding something back which you might know roger hill seldom does and he explained to me well you know when we're talking about eight inches of rain uh that's eight inches on top of the hill Imagine you know how many inches halfway down, and that's what happens in the valley. I think that's when it first hit me, David. That this one was going to be very significant, and we had to be prepared.
0: What did you think? What did you do to be prepared? Um, how, how does a radio station prepare for a disaster?
7: Well, like Tom Beardsley says, to quote the Tom Selleck, it's not our first rodeo. Um we immediately went across the hall to Ken Squire and said, Ken, uh, we just got on the phone to Roger Hill, and here's what he's saying. And uh, Ken asked us a few very pointed questions about how we would do this, what should we expect. We've been through other disasters before. And we came up with an immediate game plan and realized that one of the first things we had to do was make sure we could stay on the air. And we had a problem with with the facilities on Stowe Street and Waterbury that we did not have emergency power. And so Tom Beardsley says, I think I know where I can find that. And one of his sponsors, as he's one of our sales reps, contacted Brookfield service, and within minutes we had secured a six-kilowatt generator. It's not a big one, but we thought we could at least stay on the air.
0: Hmm. Um, <clears throat> well, a key part of preparing for this storm, not just for WDEV, but for the whole community, is Roger Hill. And Roger has been the trusted voice of uh, what's to come in the weather for many decades. Roger, the phrase that I will never forget from Tropical Storm Irene was you talking about bombogenesis. Can you explain? I had never heard that word used before in describing a Vermont weather forecast. So um tell us what that is, but also just... Tell us the weather story of Tropical Storm Irene.
2: Sure. Um, so, bomba. well, just to, we'll get to the Bombogenesis part because that's mostly a winter phenomenon with nor'easters. But uh, Irene was a category, it started out, of course, as a depression. It was an easterly wave that had come off the uh, West African coast. And as most of the storms do, the most tropical cyclones do. Um, they track to the west and then make this kind of general curve, and sometimes it's out over the open Atlantic, sometimes it's up the eastern seaboard. Well, Irene had a pretty well-modeled path. Uh, I, I look back and think back uh, 10 years ago just how tight and narrow the modeled uh, spaghetti plots were, if you will. These are the lines of the various computer models. And even back then, uh, this was well modeled uh, in terms of its track, uh, where it was going to hug the coastline, probably make some sort of landfall after crossing uh, just a little east of Florida. And typically, if you know your geography, it sticks out there, uh, North Carolina, and then it comes up the coast and kind of hugs the coastline and um, part of that being kind of overhanging land and part of it overhanging uh... some very very warm water sea surface temperatures as further north it gets it it to starts to lose some punch and as they typically do um, wasn't a tremendous amount of fanfare uh... in new york city um, even though it did pass very very close there but then came right into connecticut came right into massachusetts and vermont and of course we all know what happens now A lot of that has a lot to do with terrain influences. And here in flat conditions, um, you know, eight inches of water is is pretty healthy. But when you combine that with terrain features, and most of us live in the valleys uh, along adjacent rivers and streams and tributaries. So all of that came into play. The bombogenesis part was that it was moving up the coast and very similar reacting to like a nor'easter where a lot of the rain was moving on the left-hand side, of the storm and the winds were on the right-hand side, and that that's kind of a, a standard-issue tropical cyclone uh, meteorology.
0: Um, another memorable part of that night was, um, so <clears throat> as I recall, the station lost power, and you had to run on a generator. Is that right?
7: Are you asking me?
0: Yes, Eric.
7: Yeah, yes, yes. Um, once again, we, we secured that, uh, that portable generator, which we parked in the, in the alley behind the radio station. And we ran literally hundreds of feet of extension cords we secured because where we had to power is, uh, upstairs studio. Uh, so we put together a fairly complicated plan that Beardson and I worked out on a, on a whiteboard a couple of days before the storm hit. And we were able to take the two outlets out of that one generator to power two different studios. And we had lost uh, pretty much everything at that point. We had no cable. We had no associated press. We had lost faxes. Uh, the telephone switchboard runs from a big computer in the basement. We didn't have enough power to run that. So we quickly were losing resources. But luckily we did have microphones and we had our listeners because it was really that night, um, David, a mutual relationship. We, the radio station, were trying to keep the audience informed, but our listeners, they're the ones that kept us informed.
0: And you at one point gave out your personal cell phone number uh, for people to call in and text in uh, as you were sitting in, uh, you know, in, dimly, in a dimly lit studio. Um, what was coming in over your phone?
7: Well, you know, it's interesting. I'd only upgraded my iPhone maybe two weeks before, and until that point, i had never sent a text. And so it's like, I'm, I'm, I'm just desperate to get more resources, uh, on the air because we lost the main switchboard and couldn't talk to listeners directly. And this is, this is uh, coming up at nine, nine, 50 at night. Um, and I looked down and I realized I still had bars on my cell phone and it's like, well, maybe I can use text to get information in here. And so I gave out my personal number and before I even gave the number a second time, somebody, Uh, Ping the phone. I I did not have the presence of mind to know in advance that I should turn off the ringer. It sounded like a pinball machine going off. The very first uh, uh, email, and I have a transcript of that evening, came at 9.02, and the message was simply, hey, (laughs) (laughs) maybe not very helpful, but I knew it was working.
0: Okay. Well, let's go to a clip from that night. This was Don calling uh, from the Connecticut River Valley, I believe.
3: Let's check back in with Don again. He's down in West Lebanon, New Hampshire, with an update on the very latest from the Connecticut River Valley. Go ahead, Don.
7: Hey, good morning, guys, and thank you once again. Uh, the river has risen uh, about a foot and a half since I last talked to you, probably a little more than an hour ago. I just wanted to clear up some confusion because I've been getting text messages
8: too.
7: Uh, the temporary bridge, Route 4, which runs between uh, White River Junction and Old West Lebanon, it is still passable, but if you're heading west into Vermont, They make you turn around as soon as you get across the bridge because there's water from the Connecticut under the train trestle bridge. So you can still get from Vermont to New Hampshire. You just can't get into downtown White River Junction, Vermont.
0: Eric Michaels, these calls were coming in. This is how, you know, so many people experience the storm through these kind of calls, the urgency in people's voices. What are some that kind of are memorable to you even to this day 10 years after?
7: I think we really knew the dynamics of the uh, developing situation when one of our listeners called up and explained to us what was happening in Stockbridge down on Route 107. And anybody has been through Stockbridge, there's bridges on either side of town. And we learned that both bridges had been either undermined or one report said they're gone. They're completely gone. And so we realized that Stockbridge was now an island with no way to communicate or get to them. Another one was a call from the Mad River Valley that told us they just saw caskets floating down the Mad River, and I think I think probably those two phone calls um, with the with the emotion, David, that came with them, because you get that in the human voice you don't get in other forms of media, and that's what makes it so very compelling, and also made it such a very um, emotional situation for all of us that were providing coverage that night.
0: Hmm. Tom Beardsley, you know, there's an axiom in the news business that um, the reporter never wants to become the news. But uh, you found yourself in a situation as you're receiving these calls, you're there with uh, Eric and Lee and Roger, um, where you felt compelled to go outside in Waterbury and, and see what was going on. Tell us that story. Well,
5: thank you for asking about that, David. It was a very interesting moment in the evening, and maybe Eric can help me remember about what time it was, but it seems like it was, might have been around 10 o'clock or so at night. And at that point, the rain had been falling very hard. We, we, we knew we were in a full-fledged crisis. All the lights are out. Waterbury is pitch dark, there wasn't a light to be found anywhere other than our studios. Bill Shepalek, the town manager, came in and, and notified us that the village of Waterbury was now being evacuated because there's going to be flooding. So I took one of those big flashlights that we have at the at the radio station, a big heavy-duty industrial flashlight, and I said to Eric, I'm going to go down on the Bank Hill on the corner of Stowe and Main Street and take a look and see what it looks like. So down I went in the rain and in the dark and it it was just as black as it could be outside. I never never experienced anything quite like that. It was like being in a cave. And I turned the corner and flashed the light down onto South Main Street in Waterbury and my it took my breath away. There was water waist deep right up to Bank Hill. And I I've lived there for many years and I'd never we'd never seen anything like that. Nobody probably had since 1927. So I walk down to the water's edge, and as I'm walking down and shining the flashlight over the water, and I've told this story before, it's humorous, but it's also serious at the same time. Far in the distance, maybe 150 yards out, I could see people in the water. And I'm on the air with a cell phone reporting to Eric on the air, and I'm saying, Eric, I I believe I'm witnessing a rescue taking place right here on... Main Street in Waterbury, and as the the waters have risen above the street, it looks to me like there's two people carrying a third person through the water. And as I'm reporting this on the air, I'm thinking to myself, gee, first, Tom, you know, you're going to look like a real jerk if you don't go and help these people out. (laughs) You know, as I look down at my feet right at the bottom at the edge of the water, and I'm thinking to myself as I was on the air reporting That I was going to have to go in the water and I was thinking, you know, this is really going to suck. And I, and at that moment I said, Eric, I've got to go off the air and I'm going to have to help out here. And he said, do what you got to do, Tom. And I was just about ready to sign off the the phone and two young fellas came running into the water right beside me. And I was literally saved by the bell at that moment. And they went in, they were young guys and they went out and they helped out and successfully transported uh, this elderly woman up to safety. Well, the humorous part of the story is she, ultimately, she was okay. I, I want to point that out immediately. But the humorous part of the story was, in the following days, as I'm getting around town to go to the grocery store or wherever, I ran into someone, uh, a lovely lady, and she's, Mr. Beardley, that's wonderful how you helped save that woman from the rising waters. And I said, no, no, I didn't save anybody. I was just on the radio. And a few days later, I'm at the post office, and I run into a fellow, he's a Beards, is is it really true that you saved that woman who was pregnant from the waters? And I, no, no, I didn't save anyone, and she wasn't pregnant, and, nah, 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 nah. and You know, and as the legend went on, weeks later, I met uh, some function where Phil Scott, who was then a state senator, and he looks at me and he says, Beards, is it true that you delivered that baby in Arvod's restaurant <laughs> after rescuing the woman from the water? <laughs> so it's it may not have been urban legend, David, but it was certainly rural le- legend that night.
0: Hmm. Um, well, I know that as you're running on generator power, um, there came uh, a dramatic moment in the course of the night um, when you had to refuel the generator. Let's go to that audio clip.
6: I'm
3: um, not showing much video now all of a sudden. Right?
6: No, we <laughs> seem to have uh, – as we speak, we, we put the focus on the cable. Uh, that's actually been fairly reliable, and that's gone, so – <laughs> Again, it, it sounds like last one standing. 96.1 is back off the air. Uh, we are here on a, on on a wing and a prayer and a 6 kilowatt generator.
1: But the uh, old reliable AM550, yeah. the friendly pioneer in its 80th year is standing firm tonight. The triple towers of that's power. Right. Oh, I wish yeah. you hadn't have said that. <laughs> yeah, I really right. wish you had said that. You think I jinxed that. it? <laughs> We're going to have to refuel the generator pretty soon. I yeah, guess. well, that's
6: true. In the next half hour we may actually have to shut down for a period of time so we can uh, refuel our generator because that's what's keeping us on the air right now and we can't frankly afford to have it sputter out by itself because it uh, generates things called square waves and
1: modern electronics, it don't like that very much. Yeah, I would think, I would think pretty soon we should think about doing yeah, that. Yeah, we really should. Yeah.
0: Eric Michaels, I remember you saying at the time that one of the hardest things you ever did was hit the power kill switch to shut down the radio station. Uh, talk about um, that moment.
7: Well, this is in the overnight hours, uh, and it's pitch black and Beardsley had already saved half the town single handedly.
0: <laughs> but right.
7: the serious situation really happened when you see, when the when the per- the first time the generate ran out of power, um we had thought we were told and we thought that the gas tank was full and so we thought we had a full six or seven hours to run it. And it suddenly we're in the middle of our coverage at nine uh nine fifty in, in the evening. And we get a, a text message comes to the phone, just lost your signal in Williston. Thanks for your excellent coverage. And I'm sort of like, what? And then we just lost you. And, of course, we're dealing with flickering lights and stuff. And, and we realized, oh, no, this thing is going down. And so the generator shut down because it ran out of fuel. So at that point, grab a flashlight. Virgil and I run down the back stairs. It's pouring. And I mean, it is coming down in sheets. We're in the middle of a tropical storm after all. So I'm holding an umbrella and pointing a flashlight down the barrel of the fill on the, uh, the still-hot generator. And Beardsley's got the gas can trying to line up the whole thing while the the rain is just coming down all around us. And by the way, refilling a, a hot generator of the gasoline is not recommended. It's, it's very hazardous. But we had to get it done as quickly as possible so we could get back on the air. So when I was talking about having to turn the generator off, it was a decision that we made to make sure we didn't damage equipment, which could have knocked our studios completely out. We did, the second time, give people fair warning that we are going to be off. And I immediately got a text, please, don't leave us. Hmm. Um, you
0: know, we're going to... uh I think we have the ability here to take another, some calls. If people do want to call in and share their own Irene stories, um, you can call us at 802-244-1777 or toll free 877-291-8255. Um, Roger Hill, I want to talk about, um, the bigger picture here, the bigger context, which is climate change and, uh, these climate fueled extreme weather events. Uh, we're going through one with Hurricane Henri. Um, put Irene in context.
9: Sure.
2: Um, so the, the relationship with climate change and hurricanes is, um, been developed, uh, by, um, quite a few scientists um a carrier manual of one out of MIT, um, one of the one of the people who have been doing climate research and the relationships with warm sea surface temperatures. And uh the Atlantic Ocean uh that summer and really since then um, pretty much off and on, but uh has been uh, above normal in, in its uh, temperatures. And so this may have to do with uh, a slowing of the uh, Gulf Stream. The uh large conveyor currents um, are slowing down because of uh, freshwater dump um, from Greenland, and uh, this is causing the salinity, um, which is kind of the mechanism or, or machine to sort of drive some of these big conveyors of ocean currents. And the fact that uh, this has been slowing down, at least some of the research that's uh, been coming out most recently, may have had something to do with that. Uh, even back then, 10 years ago, with the uh, with uh, Hurricane Irene. Because it it sort of backs up the Gulf Stream and pushes a lot of that warmer temperature back toward New York City. Where did Irene drive up? Right along the coast um, from Cape Hatteras north. It actually came through uh, Cape Lookout region there and then kind of dumped off the coast for a time and uh, kind of went through New Jersey and uh, basically took a track real close to the coastline and kind of alternated over land and, and sea. But a lot of it was hanging over that very, very warm water and that plays a role with uh, climate change. Um, Although hurricanes, uh, the the well-developed hurricanes are going to be fewer, they'll be stronger the ones that do (coughs) develop. And so that's been the kind of pattern that we're seeing with tropical cyclones. And Irene, of course, with the extra water vapor and um, the fact that it just made a a quick, a lot of inertia forward momentum into Vermont was a part of the, the play, if you will, and that may have also been driven by uh, a stronger jet stream, kind of the steering winds tracking Irene quickly.
0: So we can expect that there are going to be Irenes and such things with more frequency.
2: Yes, uh, basically because some of the climate that, say, might be down in New Jersey is now basically equal with Cape Cod and so forth. So the fact that the the change in the warming of the ocean temperatures is is kind of making tropical systems last a whole lot longer and have a whole lot more punch. And uh, the theory goes that, you know, at some point, uh, what goes on in Cape Hatteras may be going on in Cape Cod. And of course, uh, we're not that far from Cape Cod. So that's kind of the play, if you will. But um, uh, all by itself, Irene, we've had, you know, 1938 hurricane, we've had Gloria, Floyd, Bob, there's been quite a few of them. Um, Floyd was pretty strong as well that also hit Vermont. Um, But we had a drought ahead of that, and so that really saved our bacon in terms of flooding. But with Irene, we had a very wet summer preceding the 28th of August, 2011. And if you think about going back to May, I think it was 24th, we had also a huge flooding um, scenario with uh, flooding thunderstorms that uh, drove across the, the central Vermont area, it wasn't statewide. So we already had uh, what we call antecedent conditions that were very, very ripe for any kind of runoff. And that also helped, if you will, flood from Irene.
0: Hmm. We have a caller on the line. Catherine Scribner is calling from Moortown. Um, Catherine, welcome to our Irene radio special. Thank you. What's your uh, experience? What, what brings you to call in tonight?
4: Well, we farm, up and down, we farm up and down the river, and the corn was as high as an elephant's eye. And the water was over the top of the corn. And down at the state hospital, we had a field of corn down there, and there was a utility trailer full of fluorescent light bulbs. And that utility trailer ended up in the treetops. Now, don't you think that was a sight? Hmm. But we also had wood come down the river from somebody's wood pile. I mean, it was – people just don't forget it. It
0: What kind of damage did your farm incur during Irene?
4: A lot, a lot, a lot of damage because we farm up and down the river and it was all corn and the water was over the top of it. (laughs) And so the corn was full of debris and sand, wood – you name it; it was a, it was a trauma. Hmm.
8: Hmm. Yeah,
4: you know, people were safe and the cows were safe, but I'll tell you, it was a lot of damage. Yep, that was a tough year, especially May. We also had that flood in May. Yep. Right. Anyway, that's it.
0: Okay. Well, thanks for sharing that thought. Anyone yes. else want to call in and share their experiences during Irene? The number is 244-1777 or toll-free, 877-291-8255. Thank, and thank you. Okay. You know, one of the memories I have was um, getting up on the Monday morning at 6 a.m., uh, having heard from friends who lived in downtown Waterbury, um, just to check on how people were and see how I could help. Uh was with my son, Jasper. We came down and in rubber boots and shovels, and uh, the work was obvious and immediate. But one of the things I remember was coming up into the station was, uh, Tom, you described the, uh, or I guess it was Eric, the, the the yards of wire coming up the stairs, but also seeing um, lots of uh, bakery goods and thank you notes strewn about. I mean, the place was a mess. Uh, it looked a bit like a bachelor pad. Uh, Ken Squire was, um, you know, going around and and kind of uh, weighing in on things. Uh, Tom, I, I wonder, you know, what did it make you feel when people just started showing up with these, you know, food and thank you notes?
5: Well, uh, the support that comes from the community for that radio station never ceases to amaze me, and it doesn't surprise me at the same time. It's just one of those things. That radio station... And I'm so proud to have been a part of it over the years. It's just, it's so intertwined with the people of not only central Vermont, but a good portion of the entire state of Vermont. And I want to take a moment here, David, just if I may, uh, to uh, wander off on a little bit of a dirt road for a second. The broadcasters that were with me that night, I have to tell you, when you look at Lee Cattell in the control room, Literally juggling monkeys all night long, putting phone calls on the air, and coordinate all, all the information. Absolutely bulletproof performance. It was just amazing to watch and to be a part of. And Roger Hill, I mean, he had it right down to which uh, which stream was going to crest its banks at what time, and he was directing us around. Uh, the state of Vermont to where the problem areas were. His weather forecasting was absolutely rock solid. I mean, just bankable. You could take it to the bank at any given moment. I never saw such a performance. And he had his computers there and his models and all that stuff that he does. It was like watching a wizard in operation. I, I don't think I've ever seen a better weather forecaster or worked with a better weather forecaster anywhere than Roger Hill. And then Eric Michaels. Let me tell you about that guy you want to talk about an iron man i mean he was on the air he was at the front he was the point of the spear for twelve fourteen eighteen hours straight twenty four hours i don't think he ever got out of his uh... chair in the newsroom under as you said dimly lit newsroom and just kept on reporting and never sounded tired never sounded flustered never sounded fatigued it was just an absolutely remarkable performance eric michael's one of the best broadcasters that anyone will ever know and then move up to the top of the chain there. And the reason we all do what we do is Kenley Dean Squire and make no mistake about it. No other radio station has the kind of leadership that this station has had over the years. A guy like Ken to make sure that his people are so wired into what their mission is in any given, at any given point in time, it was just a remarkable evening. And I, I to, to the day I die, I will remember those those guys and working with them that night, and what a remarkable performance it was on the part of all of them.
0: Hmm. Well, you know, Eric, I want to um, ask you. You have been in the radio business um, for many decades. I won't I won't give away your age here, but um, you know, the kind of thing that Tom described about how many radio stations are automated, what people take for granted when they tune into WDEV, a live local you know, news station, that's actually vanished in, in much of America. Explain kind of the landscape of what radio stations look like now across the country and, and really in many parts of Vermont, that you don't find this so much anymore.
7: No, generally speaking, a lot of satellite radio and a lot of radio stations that used to be local, locally owned, locally operated, um, they've, they've gone into, into corporate America. And now they're there, you know, have four different, five different radio stations lined up down the hallway of one place and there's nobody there. Uh, they're just computers running everything. There's, there's ways to still make it very, very relevant to a local audience, but it's an economic thing. And the fact that our Federal Communications Commission, um, stopped, uh, sort of judging radio stations by programming, but more auctioning off available frequencies. And that's a whole different program. I'd like to just follow up quickly with what Beards was saying. Um, hey, thank you for the comments, but let's not remember uh, the, the guy was out there on the street. And I'll tell you, working as a team, and I think that's part of the thing about having live people. It's it's not one of us. It's the fact that our combined experiences, you know, it's, it's like doing a dance or playing in a, on a basketball team. You know the other person's move. I don't know how many hours in the years that I worked with Lee Cattell that I sat across the gray glass from him where we could barely see each other off the reflections, and I could tell just by the look on his face what's going to happen next. And the trust that you develop by facing these other broadcasters, because you're all in the same thing together. There were a few couple of moments that we realized things were tough. I do want to bring in again the name Bill Shepard, the Waterbury Town Manager. He was the only one that really came to the radio station to keep us informed face-to-face. And when we realized that Waterbury, by and large, was going to be evacuated, and especially we found out the state complex was being evacuated, that's where our Department of Emergency Management resides. And we realized all these people had to drive past our front door as they had to head up to, I think it was Williston, they went to the back of headquarters, And we sort of got that sense, you know what, we're kind of alone. We're the last candle in the dark. And I think we all sensed that responsibility that we had with the two or three microphones we had available and a couple of dim lights.
0: Well, I think that we we have somebody on the line who can shed a little light on that story of – uh not just the emergency management center was flooded, but of course Waterbury has been home for over a century to the state psychiatric hospital, which ten years ago was still a full functioning state psychiatric hospital. Uh John is calling from Waterbury Center. Um John, I understand you were at the state hospital that night.
9: No, oh, I was indeed um <clears throat> Sunday evening shifts at on Brooks Two at State Hospital.
0: And what happened in the hospital? I mean, you had many patients there
9: yeah it's a uh, the hospital at that point uh had a uh, fifty two bed capacity, and we probably had uh 15, 17 patients on brooks two uh that was the co ed unit uh Brooks one was below us that was all male and then there was Brooks Rehab that was in the basement, which got uh completely flooded and um what when what happened? The the uh, we had seen working there any length of time. You you would see the field back there get flooded uh, uh, in the uh, in the summer and in this, particularly in the spring. Um, and I kept looking out the window, and I said, "Well, if, if it gets uh, if it, there's there was a kind of a, a, a slope from the the, the circular uh, dry, uh, drive." around the facility and I said uh if it gets uh if it comes up over that slope uh then that's different uh but at the time I I was saying well this is just like every other time but it wasn't of course and um it it uh came up uh in uh and over the long term it uh, <clears throat> overtook the admissions department and brooks uh, uh, completely Brooks Rehab, which was also on the ground. Well, it was sort of halfway ground and halfway basement. Uh, and, and then it actually, uh, came up almost into Brooks One. Uh, it, which they, uh, they, well, first, of course, they had to uh, evacuate Brooks Rehab and they sent those people to the center, center part of the complex. Uh, there was a basketball court there and I believe they, uh, carried their mattresses uh over the, over there and um spent the night uh when it got up uh, uh over the uh by the way there were all, all there was all, all the 100 a well, 100 years of records in that commissions department paper records and and uh, um, quite a few computers all of that was lost um,
0: i imagine that must yeah. have been a pretty terrifying experience um with floodwaters well, rising and the dark buildings
9: well yeah the uh the uh, the the alarm the fire alarm went off at some point and uh and there was no uh nobody could figure out for several hours how to turn it off and and uh you don't want to subject uh um <clears throat> a mentally challenged population to a a constant fire alarm uh if you can avoid it. Uh, And that was was very trying.
0: How Um, did people, you know, how were people reassured, uh, you know, the patients reassured that it was going to be okay? I I have subsequently read some really dramatic stories of how nurses um, swung into action to save patients.
9: Well, uh, yeah, uh, saving them uh, uh, certainly – in my re- remembrance uh I don't think i saw anybody re- uh really in a, uh you know in in a serious situation um but somebody somebody uh beforehand had bought a, went went to the hardware store and bought a whole bunch of flashlights and um and we normally we only had a few uh but uh for there they all were and we all carried them all the staff, and that was an incredible uh, advantage uh, because the, there was no electricity and, uh, except for that alarm, which just went on and on and on. Wow. Um,
0: well, let's let's turn to uh, another Waterbury resident. Dick is calling from Waterbury. Uh, Dick, uh, tell us uh, what brings you to call tonight.
10: Well, first of all, I just wanted to thank WDEV for all the work that they did uh, and it's especially good to hear Eric Michaels' voice on the radio again. Um, we we're, were, at the time, at my mom's house uh, in Duxbury, and actually the mobile home park. Uh, we had 19 trailers, and we lost them all. Uh, and my mom's house had, counting the basement, eight feet of water plus another four feet of water in the house but what was really heartening was all the people that turned out afterwards to help. Um, people, you know, you just came from everywhere and, you know, they got themselves muddy and dirty and then coffee roasters came around with pizza and coffee. Um, so on one hand it was really bad, but on the other hand it was like, wow, this is, this is pretty good. Um, (laughs) But it got totally weird uh, a day or so after when things dried out. And I actually made a call into DEV to ask Eric to put out an announcement when people were driving by, which, of course, everybody did because they wanted to see what had happened and where it had happened. Uh, All that muck and grime and slime and stuff, when it dried, turned to dust. And as cars went by, it just created dust storms, and you could no longer breathe. So one day you're in knee deep in mud, and the next day you're coughing because of the dust is so much. So,
0: hmm. so it,
10: it completely turned. But uh, yeah, it was quite an experience, that's for sure.
0: Well, thanks for uh, sharing that, Dick. Um, Eric, uh, there were moments of levity in here too. Um, as I recall, at one point somebody called your, uh, texted you, to place an order for pizza. Um, <laughs> does that ring a bell?
7: Oh yeah, very early on, and I sort of made light of it, like, well, we're 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 doing something here that's you know kind of serious, and we're we're getting. In fact, I had a transcript here for you real quick, maybe. And it's like, um, uh, oh, the question is, do you think that Zacharys is still open? And I sort of said, well, we, we have other things we're dealing about. And then it came back and said, "Well, because I want some pizza." <laughs> <laughs> so we're moving along, talking about uh, this uh, situation that came in on the uh, Bridge Street in Morrisville. And then finally, there's there's nothing about do you have their number? And it's like, what is this person talking about? And he says, "I have concerns. I have concerns about pizza." Well, we tried to handle almost everything, David, but we I don't think I don't think we ever got him the pizza that night. <laughs>
0: Well, it's good that Vermonters – we lost a lot of things in that storm, but we didn't lose our sense of humor. Um, I want to turn to some audio of somebody who was a regular um, uh, feature uh, talking to Vermonters uh, through uh, WDEV, and that was Sue Minter, and full disclosure, Sue is my wife. Um, and Sue at the time was the Deputy Secretary of Transportation and, of course, among the many disasters going on was a incredible infrastructure disaster. Here's audio of Sue on the day of the storm.
6: Joining us in the news line now is Sue Minter, uh, the Deputy Secretary of Transportation here for the state of Vermont. We know it's been an incredibly busy day for you and your department, Sue. So uh, Thanks for taking the time to be with us here for Radio Vermont News.
11: You're so welcome, and thank you, Eric, for this tremendous coverage. Uh, you know, I think listeners are getting a lot more information from you than really any other source, especially locally here, so we appreciate all the energy you're putting out there and the information.
6: What can you um, tell us at this point as far as the state infrastructure?
11: Well, I'm concerned about uh, town infrastructure, state infrastructure, and even the new infrastructure that we are in the process of rolling out after the severe winter and spring that we've had uh, you know, it's hard to assess right now what's going to be the end result, but there are some bridges and roads that are unstable, and we have closed many, as you know, for uh, to keep travelers safe, but we will have to assess at the end of all this, and there will be an end uh, when the waters recede, of uh, what the conditions of those uh, critical bridges and roads are at that point. Uh, I really want to emphasize to ask Vermonters to use good judgment and not to go out if they do not have to.
0: Well, uh, Sue, thanks for joining us on this uh, audio, uh, this radio special here. I wonder if you could just recall uh, for us what it took to put the state back together. This was an unprecedented mobilization of state workers to put this state back together again
11: thank you, David. Thanks for having me and for WDEV, and it's so great to hear all of those wonderful um, newscasters together there with you tonight and reflecting on this momentous uh, event of 10 years ago. You're right. It was uh, an incredible effort to to put the state back together again, and I'll just speak uh, quickly about the state transportation infrastructure, which was um, my job at the beginning of the emergency response um, to help prepare. And and we were very fortunate to have, uh, of our 1,300 employees, we had four people at that time trained uh, to uh, go into incident command uh, systems, which is a structure that really is designed for disaster management by the way, now every single employee of the Agency of Transportation receives this training. Uh but what we did was we created um we deployed seven hundred employees uh in within forty eight hours to three different command centers around the state, two major ones and then the the head office in Montpelier, uh where I was stationed. And uh really we assessed um uh, very quickly, you heard me early on with Mike Eric um we ended up having over 600 miles of road damaged, um, hundreds of bridges, including 34 state bridges. And as you mentioned, 30, uh, 13 communities were totally isolated. So we had to have clear direction, and, and we knew that the first role was to restore connectivity to those isolated communities, which we were able to do uh, within 48 hours. And then we um, had, day by day, incredible, just 24-7 dedication to get all of the roads uh, maintainable by winter, which was achieved by literally December 31st. So for those 16 weeks' deployment, um, we had people around the clock working. But that was just one piece of the story, David. I mean, we had incredible, incredible heroic stories of emergency management folks uh, rescuing Swiftwater rescues. We had uh, so many communities establishing emergency shelters uh, and so many thousands of neighbors uh, giving of themselves and their time, neighbors helping neighbors, to really uh, make sure that people were able to Get to safety first and foremost, but then to recover their homes and livelihood.
0: I wonder. You then went on to be the uh, governor. Shumlin asked you to be the um, Irene Recovery Officer for the state. So you continued in this sort of disaster relief mode for um, several years. And I wonder what kind of less uh, you know lessons learned came from this disaster because Vermont has ended up being held up as a model in some ways. Um, What did Vermont do right that other people took notice of?
11: Well, uh, I will say I'm I'm enormously proud of our state, and um, I was honored to have the opportunity following uh, the leadership of Neil Lunderville, who started in those first critical four months of emergency response, to then become the recovery officer, which really looked at the entire state of how do we build back. And and really the rallying cry, which uh, was established by Governor Shumlin, was to build back stronger. And I really believe that is what we did. And because of this, I, I see it for myself, but also for the state as a transformational event because um, I think we not only learned lessons, but we uh took um, what we had learned to become more resilient. Um, it's become a very popular word, but what we mean is if you look at the infrastructure, we built roads and bridges and culverts to a much higher standard, because we knew that Irene wasn't going to be the last event. In fact, we anticipate, as you know we've heard that we will have more um more frequent and intense storms because of climate change, so knowing that we built a stronger infrastructure we've uh the state Department of Environmental conservation has now a whole system of restoring rivers so that uh, they are no longer straight and narrow uh, but to reduce the velocity and the power and the strength and danger of those rivers, they are now built back to kind of meander. And we are conserving land so that the rivers can flood in places where people don't live. Uh, But significantly, the state is also invested in helping people who have homes that we know are in harm's way uh, to actually uh, move. It's called the buyback program. Uh, And of course, houses that were built in their foundation were built to another higher standard. And even the state office complex and that incredible story of, of evacuation, uh, it took years, literally, to um, negotiate with our federal uh, emergency management, FEMA, to enable us to actually build back a modern uh, facility that is much more flood resilient, uh, which I can describe in more detail, but most importantly, it's a safer place for the future. And, and David, I would just say that uh, two big uh, take-home lessons is we have built back stronger, and and we are more resilient, um, but we're also still extremely vulnerable uh, because the climate is changing, and we can look at the drought and fires out west, the horrific uh, flash flooding in Tennessee that sounded so much like what we experienced in Irene, and of course now Henri uh, tearing apart uh, the East Coast. Uh, This is going to continue, and that's why it's so urgent that we work together to make sure uh, that we can adapt to our changing climate and hopefully reduce um, its cause, which is carbon emissions.
0: And finally, I wonder if some of what we saw that helped us to recover as a community through Irene, if some of that isn't evident in our response to the pandemic I wonder what your thoughts on that are, Sue.
11: You know, um, Beardsley was talking about the unbelievable uh, heroism of the DEV crew. And we can say the same about the road, I call them the road heroes and the power companies and the emergency responders, all of whom are working 24-7. But when you really get down to it, it's about incredible sacrifice and dedication because I believe in our Vermont strong spirit. And what I mean is that we care about one another. We actually realize that we're all in this together. And to me, the leadership that we've had uh, responding to this pandemic our are 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 leading the nation with folks who are getting vaccinated because they care about their neighbor. Um, It's very similar to of the incredible response, the model that we showed. I mean, when FEMA showed up, they couldn't believe that everybody had already helped one another get out of their homes and muck out, and the roads were already being repaired. Uh, We are an outstanding state, I think, and it has so much to do with our compassion for one another, our commitment to a better future, and uh, I guess what I would say is the Vermont strong spirit that that I experienced and so many others did uh, following Irene and then, I would say absolutely that I am seeing today with our commitment to helping survive and recover from this pandemic.
0: Well, that's a good note to end on. I want to thank all of you, uh, the WDEV heroes of Irene, Tom Beardsley, Eric Michaels, Lee Cattell, and Roger Hill, and Sue Minter, um, the former Irene Recovery Officer. Thanks to all of you for sharing your stories tonight about Irene 10 years after. We're going to go out and give the final final word to Grace Potter who puts things uh, in a perspective as only she can. This is the Mad Mad River, the song that she composed about tropical storm Irene that uh, she used as a fundraiser to help people build back. <laughs>